Well, hey, good morning. Throughout this series that we've been in, this is a church for Monday, we've been praying for people in different areas of employment. And if you are in uh, customer support or customer service in any way, be it retail or behind the scenes, if um, you spend your life dealing with people like me, um, I'd like you to stand just for a minute. Could you guys stand for me? And um, um, I know that you guys are often in a difficult position because there's this um, saying in retail that the customer's always right. Have you guys heard that before? Is the customer always right? No, that's not the case. And uh, Kristen and I, years ago, we opened a, a bread company in Grand Haven, and occasionally I would work the counter. I would avoid it at all costs. Because you walk in and you know the customer comes in and it's like, your pecan swirl, does that have nuts in it? <laughs> And, and you want to respond like no bread for you two years. Like that's what you want to, that's what you want to go to. Um, but you can't. And sometimes you're solving problems and disappointments. And sometimes people are coming to you with frustrations that have absolutely nothing to do with you. But here's the reality. In some ways, you're on the front lines of dealing with people, often in difficult situations, but it also gives you the opportunity to be a light for Christ in those situations. So we just want to lift you guys up in prayer. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, I would um, lift up this group of men and women who are standing um, today, and uh, we recognize that uh, they are often found, find themselves in difficult positions in dealing with um, dissatisfied people and dissatisfied customers, and um, I would just pray that in the midst of that, that uh, they would remember that their identity is not um, in what people say or how people respond to them, but their identity is the fact that they are children of the king. And I would even pray that in the moments of frustration that you would give them endurance, that you would give them hope, that they would remember that uh, they are a light in a uh, difficult environment. And we would uh, just pray that uh, you would um, give them glimpses of who you are through the midst of their work week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So do me a favor, um, if you guys would take your Bibles and open them to, Revel, or to Romans 14. We're going to be in Romans 14 today. We're kind of jumping in near the end of a book, but we are closing our series at church for Monday today. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers. They'll get a copy of God's word into your hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can keep that as a gift from us. But as we conclude this series, what we've been arguing for throughout this series is our perception of the church shouldn't be just when we come together and we meet on a Sunday. Uh, church is more than what happens in this building on a Sunday. It's more than just coming here and worshiping and learning from God's word. That has to translate, that has to um, impact the way that we live the rest of our week. If church only happens within these walls, we've missed the calling for the church. We are to be a light, we are a city on a hill, and we are called to basically take the church out of this room and carry it into our community. And so we've been discussing how do we do that and looking at different things about um, what it means to be part of a community of a church, what it means to live in submission. And we've started last week kind of a part two to end this thing. How do we determine what God's will is for us and how do we make the choices that we're confronted with every day? And the verse that we looked at last week is from Ephesians 5 and it says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we looked last week, there's several unwise 
kind of perspective on God's will. Some people believe that God's will is a dot, that he has a specific will for every decision that you make. Don't live in the White House. You're supposed to live in the Blue House. Don't marry this person. You have to marry this person. You have to search through billions of people to find your soulmate. And if you mess up, well, that's on you. And uh, living with the idea that God has a specific will for you um, can be very defeating because if you ever look back and have regrets or feel that you made choices that weren't in God's will, all of a sudden you can quickly convince yourself that you'll never experience God's best for your life. Like I fell off the dot and the best I can do is kind of live as a second rate believer. Um, That's crazy. We looked at that last week. We also said that God's will is more than just um, a feeling or a hunch And uh, God's will is not subjective, and it's very seldom found in isolation. So what we said last week, kind of from a 30,000-foot view of what it means to be in God's will, we said the first thing is you need to know that um, you need to view yourself as stewards. It's important. And then you need to look at what you're passionately pursuing. You will have a better um, confidence and a better chance of living according to God's will if he is your primary pursuit. Then we talked about building relationships that matter, that usually God's will is not found in isolation, but it's found through biblical counsel and biblical relationships. So that was kind of the 30,000 square foot view. And what I want to do is I want to bring it down to ground level this morning. The problem is when you go from 30,000 square feet to ground level, you got to make sure you do that in an organized way, right? If I do that too fast, that's not a landing, that's a crash. Would you agree? So we're going to pick it up in Romans 11. We're in Romans, I'm sorry, in Romans 14, actually. But let me get you caught up with what's been going on in the book all up till then. Chapter 1 in Romans tells us that there is a downward spiral of sin, that all of us are impacted and affected because of sin. Romans 2 and 3 begin to unpack that our sin is not solved by the law. The law wasn't given to solve the problem of our sin. The law was given to expose the holiness of God to us and actually make us more aware of our sin. And then as you get into Romans 3, it says, now that we have the law, it becomes apparent that all of us have sinned. No one seeks after God. Everyone's fallen short. And you slide into Romans 5, and you've got two great chapters on the incredible work that Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, that we have been redeemed, that we have been reconciled, that he has become the propitiation, big, big, big biblical word there, for our sin, that we're not saved from the curse of sin because of anything we do, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. And then you get to Romans 6, and it begins, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Like The people are kind of like, well, great, if Christ did everything, we can live however we want. And he's like, no, 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 no. Our life should be in response. We should live a life that is in response to the gospel out of gratitude. We should be obedient to our Savior. We should be followers of Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 7, you get into Paul wrestling that though he is trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he is waging war with the desires of his flesh. And we're faced with the reality that even though Christ has paid for our sin, that until one day we're glorified in this flesh, we're going to battle against sin. And Romans 8 becomes an encouragement that says, though we're battling, don't ever forget that you are joint heirs with Christ, that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ, that he is working all things together for our good. And then you get into chapters 9 through 11, 
And he says, listen, all of this is part of God's sovereign plan for us, but it's not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. So Christ's salvation reaches to all people. So that's 11 chapters of Romans in about two minutes. How'd I do? Okay, so we got that book covered. We're good. We're going to pick it up in chapter 12 this morning as we begin to look at God's will and convictions and choices. And it says this in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's interesting. I memorized these verses when I was younger. I memorized them out of the King James. And rather than saying, which is your spiritual worship, the King James says, which is your reasonable service. So it's saying, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that he's done for us, it is your reasonable service to give your life as a living sacrifice to the things of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so... Here's what I would say, just kind of as a launch from those verses. We're called to discern what the will of God is. The word is actually tasked to understand what the word of God is. And that should be a primary pursuit for us. We should be concerned with what God's will is in our decisions, in the, dire- in the direction in our life, in the choices that we are making. But you won't be able to get there until you've made the primary decision to say, listen, My priority, my main passion is going to be to pursue Jesus Christ. It's interesting, uh, kind of on a tangent, uh, we had a party with the pastors, a bunch of new people at our church a couple of weeks ago, and one of the questions that was asked is, why don't you do altar calls at Harvest? And they're like, the church that we came to, there was an altar call at the end of every service, but you guys haven't done a lot of altar calls since I've been here, why don't you do altar calls? And there's a reason for that. And I'm not against altar calls. We'll do altar calls from time to time. But what I don't want is a confusion that you, under the pressure of a preacher or or some other reason, make a decision to walk an aisle and to pray and believe, well, now I'm saved and that's all that's required. That moment is critical. There has to be a moment in your story where you recognized that you were a sinner, that you needed forgiveness, that you called on Jesus to save. Like that is a very important decision. That has to be part of your story. But that's not the only part of your walk with Jesus Christ. The best way I could give this is an analogy. Hypothetically, if later this spring there was a 5K race in Grand Haven, and hypothetically, I decided to sign up for the race, okay? I can sign up for the race and choose to run in the race, but you need to understand I can't really run in the race unless I've signed up. The the signing up is critical, but it is possible to sign up for the race and then not show up and run in it. Would you agree? Well, if I were telling you that I am a 5K participant, I was in the event, it would require me to do the sign up and the actual running. The sign-up is critical. It has to start there. But our life has to reflect. And I don't ever want to limit the decision to follow Christ to a momentary decision. It is started with a decision, but it is a lifelong commitment. Does that make sense? And if you're looking for an altar call where you're really pressured, hey, good news, it's coming in two weeks. 
We're doing a baptism service that week. And let's just say that I'm starting the subtle pressure right now for those of you who haven't been baptized. And if you're here in two weeks, it's going to be a full court press to get you to be baptized because we believe that Christians get baptized. It is the profession of their faith. It is what Christians are called to do in obedience. It doesn't save you, but it's an important step. So I believe that if we're going to understand God's will, it has to be an understanding that we've given our lives as a sacrifice for the gospel. If you jump to Romans 13, this is a refresher on what we taught the second week of this series. It talks on submission. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. This seems pretty clear. We live lives in submission to the authorities God's appointed because we understand that the authorities over us were appointed by God. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we've got to be also followers of the established or the authorities that he's placed in our lives. And I would push this a little bit to say in our American view of independence, we want to live where nobody else is telling us what to do. And I'm telling you, if you ever get there in your life, it's a very dangerous place to be. God has given us authorities to live in submission as a reminder that our entire lives are to be lived in submission to Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the background as we get to Romans 14. I'm finally there. And as we get into Romans 14, the church is conflicted about some areas and what their behavior should be. And it's, early, it's interesting, in the early church, there were three kind of areas, that ought, the issues that kind of come up. How you honor the Sabbath, the issue of circumcision, do Gentiles have to be circumcisioned? And then the other is always diet. So in Romans 14, two issues are on the table. The issue is diet, and the issue is um, how you practice the Sabbath. So the early church had three issues. I would argue that our churches bicker and argue about way more than that. Wouldn't you agree? So I'm trying to think of some areas that you and I might have disagreements on relative to our conduct. Um, alcohol would for sure be on that list. When, where, with who, how much, should you completely abstain? Entertainment choices, what movies, what shows, what series you can watch on Netflix. We could argue about that all day. Um, clothing, what is modest? Some people have real issues with body piercings or tattoos. I would add anything related to appearance, including um, hairstyle. Um, <laughs> that's our youth pastor, Dylan. Dylan, are, are you in the room? Go ahead, stand up for us. Now, now note, he's got a hat on. So, so he's, he's aware of the issue. I, we're just making you a little bit more aware. Can you take the hat off just kind of for a minute? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> uh, you lost a bet. Is that kind of what happened? Is, do I understand that correctly? Okay, so he had a bet with his youth guys about uh, how many high school students would go to camp. They exceeded the number and... Well, he did that. And so you can sit. I don't mean to make you stand. All of us can agree um, that's wrong, right? I mean, like, like the look, it's, I don't know that we could agree that it's sinful. I, I don't think we can go there, but it, it's a bad look. Like we could all be in agreement there. But, but, you know, when does that cross the line? And the funny thing is we might agree that's okay. But it was, I, I enjoyed this. He was down at a 
biblical counseling conference this week at a very conservative church in the middle of rural Indiana where they wear a lot of suits and ties. And it just made me smile all week because they might have a completely different opinion. You know what I mean? And so we can disagree on a lot of different things, how we spend our time, how we handle our finances. I remember um, Kristen and I, uh, back in our late 20s, her, her father was um, wealthy and we were moving to Michigan and he decided to, for a gift to his daughter, um, build a house for her. And so we raised our kid in a, kids in a house that he had built as a gift for his daughter. Fast forward 25 years, our kids are grown, we're selling the house, and MLive runs an article on this listing of our house. It was very, very interesting to read the comments because people looked at the house and it was like, man, that's an ugly house. And then there were interior pictures and they're like, you think the outside of the house is ugly? Man, you got to see the furniture. Like, I don't understand who would decorate like that. Like, what were they thinking? And then it was like, who would want to live in a house like that? And, and that's gaudy, it's, it's outrageous, it's extravagant. And then the article began to be shared hundreds of times. And all of a sudden I've got pastors commenting on the house from Ohio saying, no pastor should live in a house like that. And he must be robbing from his congregation. And that guy's a criminal. And it was interesting, do you, do you see what happened there was a conviction about what type of house somebody should have, but it jumped from a conviction about their activity to what type of person that they were. See, the issue with Dylan isn't the goofy pink hair. The problem is some people will look at the hair and they're going to make judgment calls about his character. And see, that's where it gets very, very tough. So there's some principles given to us in Romans 14 on how to protect ourselves as a church from falling into some of these traps. Now, now, please hear me one other thing before I get to the text. When we're talking about convictions and choices, please understand we're not talking about things that God has directly forbidden in his will. Like, we can argue about alcohol consumption, but we can't argue about drunkenness. Like, he's made a do not be drunk. That's, that's said in scripture. We can argue about a lot of different things, but we can't argue about whether sex outside of marriage is acceptable. And you might have a different conviction than God's word, but here's the reality. In areas where he's directly said, this is allowed or this isn't allowed, in those areas where God has expressed his direct will, our job as followers of Jesus Christ is to basically put our convictions in submission to the declared will of God. Does that make sense? So this isn't in areas where God has clearly said this is right or this is wrong. What we're talking about is areas of what some would call liberty or discretion. Okay, here's the first point as it relates to convictions. Don't let your convictions be used to judge others. Don't let your convictions be, be used to judge others. Almost missed it. Let me give you the big idea as well. My convictions will determine my choices my convictions will determine my choices. So picking it up, Revelation, or Romans 14, verse 1. Has for one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Notice something that's interesting there. The more legalistic, the more restricted, the one who would only eat vegetables because they had a problem with all meat, they're identified in this passage as the weaker brother. 
Often the most legalistic in the church context believe that they're the stronger brother. In this case, it's 180. They're called the weaker brother. It says in verse three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So here's just some simple observations. Your convictions are for your conduct. They're not for the groups. In areas of liberty or discretion, you really don't need to make your opinion known in all of those areas. If somebody asks you the basis for your conviction, that's fine. It's great to share there, but don't impose your convictions upon the group. The second thing I want you to notice in this passage is Paul is not writing giving advice to the church in Rome. He's not saying, hey, listen, if there's disagreements, here's how I think would be a really, really good way to handle it. This isn't advice. He's giving God's command. And he's saying, don't let your personal convictions be placed over the entire group to the place where it causes conflict. So the first point, do not let your convictions be used to judge others. I'm trying to do this in the order of the text, but actually the next one should have been the first. Here's the second point, have convictions. Look at what it says in verse five. Again, now they're arguing about how to properly um, celebrate the Sabbath. It says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Look at the last phrase here. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So as you go into some of these areas where you have discretion, you need to understand you need to have a conviction. You need to be fully uh, convinced of these things in your own mind. I will deal with um, couples that are in uh, marriage counseling or I will be dealing with couples that are about to be married and I'm always stressing to them, sit down together as a couple and formulate your convictions as it relates to different areas. It's not a great idea to formulate your convictions in the moment of temptation. Think about some of these things beforehand and don't just follow your parents' convictions. You've got to form these as the new family unit that you are creating. We've had situations where one family is really conservative and the other family is not from a conservative background and the couple gets married and all of a sudden they're one way with the conservative family and another way with the more liberal family. And I'm like, really, that's a bad plan. Your convictions don't vary by who you're with. Formulate your convictions... And if you're with a family that has a more conservative set of convictions, you may choose to honor them by following their convictions when you're with them. Just don't be hypocritical. Let them know where you are and that it's, you're honoring them. Don't let your convictions waver by who you're with. It's important that we have our own convictions. And again, these are things we need to be thinking about before we're confronted with it, because in the moment, what I found is my feelings, what I want to do, have very little conviction. In the moment that I'm tempted, if that's when I'm like, well, should I do this or should I not? That's a really bad plan because my feelings are really bad at convictions. I want to Before I get to the moment of temptation or that I have to make the choice, I want to formulate my convictions by a choice of my will so that my my will leads my feelings rather than always having my convictions tested in the moment. This is called living with wisdom. James 4.17 says, 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So whether the choice that you make is sinful or not sinful is based off the convictions that you formulated. Here's the third thing. The purpose of our convictions is to honor the Lord. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see in a kind of a repeated pattern there? Like, like whether you choose to eat, whether you choose to not eat, whether you choose to observe the Sabbath in one way or not in another way, listen, the motivation behind your activity is to make sure that what you are doing brings honor to the Lord. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the clear teaching so far is we need to have convictions. We don't want to view others and judge others through the lens of our convictions, and we want to do everything to honor the Lord. So Here's what I would tell you. Here's a conviction that I have formulated. I have formulated the conviction that my convictions will not be used to judge others. That's a conviction that I have to have as a follower of Jesus Christ. So from a church standpoint, please understand that over the nine or so years that we've been operating as a church, there's a lot of people that have come to us and asked us opinions on a lot of different things, wanting us to have specific convictions. Hey, how do you guys feel about Halloween? Is it okay for parents to send their kids out trick-or-treating? Do you have an opinion on that? Nope. (laughs) Nope, I don't. I like candy. That might influence my decision. (laughs) But, But I don't want a conviction. I want you to formulate your convictions for your family and you to handle those things. A myriad of things. You know, hey, how do you feel about people going in to tanning booths and tanning? I got nothing. I don't care. Don't fall asleep in the machine and come out weird shades of purple. That's all I care, okay? I don't have convictions in areas. I'm trying to give you the guidelines on how you operate in your convictions. I hope that's clear. So let's kind of switch gears from our convictions and let's look at some things we need to consider when we're making choices. Here's where this gets messy. Here's the first point. As we follow our convictions that we formulated, as we're faced with specific choices, there's some other guidelines that we need to subject our thinking to as followers of Jesus Christ. The first one is, how will this impact others? Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Verse 15, therefore, or for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by, by what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. So not only am I required to live by my convictions as I make my choices, but my convictions are now subject to how it will impact others. I'll say this really, really simply. Our convictions can be trumped by our love for our brothers. Now, even in saying that, I don't like it. Like, it's hard enough to formulate my own convictions, and now I've got to consider my love for my brother on top of my own convictions? Like, like I don't even like what the text says there, if I'm being honest. So what do you do when you don't like what the text says? Because I do the same thing. I look for texts that say something different so that I can 
argue the point. Don't you ever do that? So I started to cross-reference this thing because I didn't like it because I think that's really hard. Here's what I found. Romans, 1 Corinthians 8.13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Crud. That says the same thing. So now I'm stuck with the biblical truth, which basically says love for my brother even trumps my convictions. And now I got to navigate how this works because what this doesn't state is the most legalistic person in the room wins. That was the problem that Jesus confronted throughout his ministry. He was always battling against the Pharisees. He wasn't battling against people that were caught in patterns of sin. He could hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and that whole group. He was fine to hang out with them. He was in constant battle with the Pharisees who had set up a legalistic system based off their interpretation of the law and then would use their interpretation of the law to judge the character of everybody else that they came into contact with. And that's the thing that Jesus fought throughout his whole ministry. So it's not that the most legalistic person wins. And here's what I'm telling you. Making biblical choices is more than just following your own convictions. You have to factor in how this affects somebody else. And that's really difficult to navigate. Let me give you an example. Probably 15 years ago, I was uh, working in a youth uh, group at another church. I was in business, but I was volunteering my time to the youth group, and I was an elder at that church, and we hired a young youth pastor. His name was Josh Tovey. Some of you know him. He's spoken here. He runs a wonderful church in Hudsonville. So Josh was our new youth pastor. We did our first kind of summer retreat with the kids. We were on the beach one afternoon, and um, some of the kids were new to our group. Some of the kids weren't even in our group. They were just friends of kids that we had in the group. And as we got to the beach activities, some of the women leaders were like, well, we've got a problem. Some of the girls' bathing suits are real immodest. So they came to Josh and I. They're like, what do you want us to do about this? And we did what any great leader would do. We said, it's your problem. I think we went and played basketball. So... The women leaders were dealt to deal with the modesty issue with some of the girls in the group, and they ended up talking to some of them and say, hey, listen, you need to put on a t-shirt. We're just kind of concerned a little bit about modesty here, and it really wasn't a problem until we got home from the retreat and one of the parents was very upset with us. So Josh gets called into a meeting with one of the parents. He's new. He's nervous. I said, I'll come, kind of have your back as one of the elders in this meeting, and it was interesting what the parent communicated. They said, hey, you had a problem, and the problem was that there were two-piece bathing suits at the retreat. And we said, yeah, that was a problem in some cases, but quite honestly, some of the one-piece suits were immodest as well. And he goes, yeah, but you didn't make all the girls in two-piece cover up. We were like, well, some of them, and again, I'm not a swimsuit expert, if I screw up the term here, there were bikinis and tank teenies, is that what it's called? So, like, like, listen, I wasn't in, I wasn't the modesty police, okay? So, they're like, you should have covered up every girl that was in a two-piece suit. We said, the issue wasn't one-piece or two-piece, the girls were trying to solve for modesty. And he goes, well, listen, I've read your bylaws here at the church, and one of the things that you've done is you've said, because you don't want drunkenness to be an issue, you have in your bylaws that none of the elders can drink at all. You have to completely abstain from alcohol. Why didn't you apply the same logic to the swimsuits and cover up every girl that was in a two-piece? And I'm like, I follow his logic. Like, I, I understand the point that he's making. And I'm like, you're right. 
what we need to do is we need to take out the no alcohol policy. <laughs> and we did. Be because the issue, listen, we were creating problems by swinging the pendulum too far one way or the other in liberty. And I'm telling you, these things are difficult to navigate. I was with a couple this last week and they were just coming to us for some counsel saying, we need wisdom in how we handle this specific area. And the reality is, it's new to us. We're faced with decisions we haven't had to make before, and we're wrestling with what God would have us do. I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't worry about that couple because they're wrestling. And I can't give you a formulaic, here's A, B, C, D of how you make choices. What I'm telling you is there's factors that you have to navigate as you make your choices. And I want you wrestling with what God's will is. And it's more than just your convictions at stake. You've got to see how it impacts others. One is, will it cause a brother to stumble? The second is, how will it affect my testimony? 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, um, abstain from every form of evil. King James says, abstain from the appearance of evil. And, and, and the issue is, I don't even want to be involved in things that could hurt my testimony as I try to be a light for the gospel on Monday through Friday. So it's more than just my convictions. It's trying to navigate all of this, these things. Not easy, but important. It says in 15, or Romans 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Our example in all of this is Jesus Christ, laying down liberties, laying down his rights for the sake of his brother. Here's a second thing that you need to understand as you make choices. The first, how will this impact others? Will it cause a brother to stumble? Will it? We can a testimony. Here's a second thing. This is a freebie. It's not in Romans. Could this lead to bondage? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. A lot of things can lead us to bondage. It can be substances, alcohol, drugs, prescription drugs, sugar, caffeine. It can be technology. It can be hobbies. It can be sports center. It can be debt. And the logic is really quite simple here. If you're going to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ, don't put yourself in a position where you're enslaved to anyone or anything else. Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, listen, it's impossible to serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So we form convictions we make choices understanding that they are informed not just by our convictions, but by our concern and love for one another, for our brothers and for the sake of the gospel. Here's three things that are kind of sources of wisdoms or places that we can get wisdom as we navigate these things. These should be familiar to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. The first is God's word. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Psalm 119 says that the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Argued from the negative, Jeremiah 8.9 says, behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what is wisdom in them? 
God wants you to be so familiar with his, with his word, to drink so deeply from his word that you begin to understand what Jesus wants, how Jesus lived, and how you should live as a follower of Jesus Christ. This should be a passion that defines you. When you are saturated with God's word, it's easier to make decisions that are based off God's word. That is obvious. Do you guys remember, I haven't seen these commercials for a long time. Do you remember the old Pepsi Challenge commercials? Okay. I don't know how I'd do if I could identify Coke, Pepsi, and RC um, today. I, I don't know how good I would do at that challenge because I don't drink a lot of Coke anymore. I just drink Coke Zero. Huge improvement. I know you guys are applauding me for that, that wonderful move. But in the old days, like five years ago, it was not uncommon. It would be very, very common for me to drink 100 ounces of Coca-Cola a day. So when I was drinking 100 ounces of Coca-Cola a day, you put a Pepsi in front of me, like, come on, I can pick that out in like this because I'm drinking Coke. RC, off-brand Coca-Cola, get that out of here. Like, like, I would notice that right away because I was completely, every cell of my body was saturated in Coca-Cola. That's what he's saying as it relates to God's word. Let that be the thing that informs your choices and convictions. The second one is prayer and fasting. So we've been praying for God's specific will so that we don't fall off the dot, so that we don't make a mistake. Now that we know that that's not true, we've got all this free prayer time. What are we going to do with it? Here's some suggestions. Pray for wisdom. Pray for proper motives. Pray that your love for your neighbor increases so that you properly balance and allow that even to trump your convictions. Pray that your decisions are led by the Spirit. We taught, we taught maybe 15 months ago a series called Honest to God. It was a series on prayer. And in that series, one of the messages, we said the big idea is this. Prayer is the means by which the purposes of God is accomplished. It's been said that prayer really doesn't change things, but it changes us because God is sovereign. Um, that is false. Prayer moves the heart of God. And though we believe strongly that God knows the beginning from the end and is sovereign in all things, we can also see in Scripture where our prayers impact the heart of God. I can't explain to you exactly how it works, but we want to rest in the confluence of God's sovereignty and the fact that he calls us to prayer. I would argue all day that our, the prayers of God's people are actually the energy or the fuel in our universe, James 5.16 says the prayers of a righteous person have great power as it works. Prayer and fasting. Fasting is like prayer on steroids. Like, God, I'm serious. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm going to fast. I'm going to put aside essentials in my life because I want you to be the main essential. And I'll forego food for a season because I'm really seeking your will. It's essential to me in the decisions that I am facing or the trials that I am confronted with. And then the third being God's people. So the sources of wisdom are God's word, prayer and fasting, and God's people. Proverbs 1.5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed talking and having relationships where people can speak into your life. Man, we continue to stress this. It is important. 
I think too often we're spending time in prayer saying, hey, God, what is your will? And God's up there going maybe, hey, rather than keep asking me the same question, why don't you make a friend? Like there's a reason I redeemed a whole bunch of you. Because when you don't operate in isolation and you talk to one another, you tend to do less stupid things. Go get some biblical wisdom. Go get some biblical counsel by people who are also passionate about the things of Jesus Christ and are pursuing his will. That's not always pleasant. It was interesting last week. I preached on Sunday and I went up to um, our home in Bightley and I met the pastor from Traverse City, a friend of mine, Doug Long. We hung out for uh, Sunday night and Monday. And we were talking about several different issues, some in his church, some in my church. Our fellowship of churches, the GCC, is going through some transitions. And as we were talking about these things, um, we were on different sides of issues at some point, And it was a fairly heated debate. And finally, he looks at me and he goes, dude, you're just running hot. Like, I'm worried for you. But like, like your level of intensity is way higher than the issue at hand. And um, I looked at him and I said, well, you're a jerk. Like, like I'm not, no, I, I couldn't say that because it was self-defeating, but I wanted to because I was running hot. Okay, so it's, it's one of these things where in that moment I had to say, you know what? That's a good word. That, that, that's wisdom. And, you know, I need to chillax a little bit. Like, I, I need to dial it down. And, and he was right. So I go to my wife. I said, like, you sense that I'm, like been running hot and like aggravated and grumpy. <laughs> she giggles. Um, I talked to Cal. He's like, same thing. Like, and so all of a sudden I'm getting counsel and says, hey, listen, I, I, I need to dial this down. That's godly wisdom because I was willing to open myself up to the opinions of other people who are for me but are still willing to say the hard word into my life. I, I hope you have those relationships so as we close this series on a church for Monday, I want to stress just one thing to you. When we talk about our church and how it's going to impact our community, if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, if we want to experience the joy of seeing lives in our, in our community transformed for the gospel, this is not optional. We don't get to decide, well, are we going to be a witness or are we not going to be a witness? There's no option in this. We are given no choice. This is God's command. Let me put this really directly to you. Wherever you go tomorrow, wherever your employment is, whoever you interact with, you understand that as you go through your day-to-day, -day, people should understand that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. They should know. If you're in retail, it's not every customer. You don't have to hand out a track and proclaim that to everyone that you interact with. The people that you're interacting with day to day, your coworkers, your extended family, do they know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Why or why not? Because if the answer is no, they do not. The reality is, if I ask you why, are you nervous? Are, are, are you fearful that it might lead to some difficulties? And, and let me assure you, you don't have to be worried that it might lead to some difficulties. It will. Guaranteed. 
But the problem is those difficulties of being a light for the gospel, being a city on the hill, being a representative and a follower of Jesus Christ, though it may lead to some difficulties in making the choice to say, listen, I'm going to have some convictions that are different from the world. And even though that might not be received by everyone, here's the good news. Some will see it. Some will hear the gospel. If my life is different in moments of trial than everyone else in the office because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, people are going to recognize that and they're going to want the peace that you have. And you might just find yourself being used by God for the gospel to see another life transformed. And I'm telling you, that is God's will for you and there is no greater joy in this world than knowing that you are in God's will, being used by God to make a difference, to see life transformed for the gospel. That's our call. And that doesn't happen here on Sunday. It happens on Monday through Saturday as we leave this place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word. And um, I would confess in my heart, I just like easy answers. And yet you call us to wrestle with our convictions and our choices. And Father, I pray that we would take that responsibility seriously because our our witness and our testimony, our relationship with you and our joy depends on it. Father, um, I'm shocked that you would care enough not just to be worried about what we do, but why we do the things that we do. And Father, you know us better than anyone else. And um, we would just thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us. It's in the name of your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend and our champion, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.